Well, today is the day that we are spending our time studying 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this morning we're looking at the second half of that chapter that spends its time in the Lord's Supper, and tonight we will spend our time in the first half of the chapter from verses 2 to 16, which talks about gender distinctions and the head covering, and using uh, this time to just zero in on this, this great chapter that God has given us. Uh, in this, it's important before we begin in verse 17 and get a sense of all that Paul gives in this uh, commandment regarding the Lord's Supper is back in verse 2, you really have the thesis of what this chapter is all about. And he reminds them and says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. He commends them and says, you're doing well and keeping all the things that I taught you when I was there and you're keeping my commandments and you're keeping the traditions and you're keeping everything that I had given to you. And that's why you see this transition in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And so they were doing things well in many of the commands that they were being given and keeping those traditions and keeping what Paul had handed them. But then he comes to this section in verse 17 and he says, but now in these following directions and instructions I have to give you, I'm not able to commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. I don't know that you could say something much worse than that. Imagine if God said here this morning, now I can't commend you about your coming together because when you guys come together, it's for the worse. It's not for the better. You go, well, what are we doing wrong? What, what, what have we done that is so wrong that you would say, it's not good what we're doing. And it centers around the Lord's Supper, verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part that there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, each one hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So notice how Paul introduces the passage that was just read for us. And he says, now I recognize there's going to be some divisions in in, in general. And the point that he's just making is, is a recognition that not everybody is genuine. Not everybody is a true believer and a true follower. We we recognize that. We don't don't believe that just because people who go to church, that they're all true believers and truly are genuinely loving the Lord with all their heart and are truly followers of Him. And so he, he recognizes and says... Uh, There's going to be those kinds of divisions and factions and problems, but that's not the issue that Paul has in mind here. You'll notice the issue that he has in mind is he says, when you guys come together, it's really not for taking the Lord's Supper at all. In fact, what you have done is you've turned this Lord's Supper into a common meal and you see the description that, that he gives there. And one eating, the other goes ahead with his meal. One is hungry, the other gets drunk. You have all of this going on. And the whole point that he's getting at here is when you come together, you're not remembering the sacrifice of Christ. What you've done is you've taken all the meaning out of it. You've ruined it. 
You're coming together and you're more concerned about your fleshly desires. You're concerned about eating and drinking. And you've removed the whole memorial, all of the significance, all of the power of what is supposed to be built in to this memorial that is being given. And I want us to consider for a moment before we press into the the text here of the Lord's Supper and the directions that are being given. Paul is giving a very key principle here that the purpose of our coming together is not that we would be trying to satisfy our own fleshly desires. And we don't come here because, well, what am I going to get out of this today? Let's make sure we get some coffee in the foyer. We can get, you know, good and woke up. And we'll make sure if you missed out breakfast, we'll throw some eggs and bacon back there. And that's not why you're here. And that's the point that he drives at here when he says, when you come together, this is supposed to be about God. This is supposed to be about focusing on Him. Our attention should be just completely just overwhelmed by thinking about Christ and what He has done for us and what they have done in coming together is take this memorial and make it into something that was common. Thus He would say in verse 22, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? If that's what you're here for, then just eat at home. Because he says there in verse 22, you're despising the church of God. Do you recognize what you're doing here is that when we come together, it is supposed to be worship directed toward God. It is supposed to be a focus on our Lord and that we put our minds and our hearts there. And it's with that basis that they are in this selfishness, that they were dividing and having these factions because they're coming together for themselves rather than a God-directed worship. He now instructs them on this is what you're supposed to do. When you come together for the Lord's Supper, he says, this is what it's supposed to look like. Verse 23 For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now we have to to talk about a few things in this text before we can get to the meaning of it. If you, like me, you grew up on the New King James or the King James Bible, and you might notice that it reads differently there. Uh, It will say, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. A whole lot more than what uh, a lot of the the versions say. And so I think it's important that we talk about that just for a minute. That you say, well, what are all these new Bibles leaving out all this stuff for us? Not what's happened is that the majority of the older manuscripts do not have the phrase take, eat, nor the which is broken for you. And that's why you see that uh, distinction given there. And so it appears like Likely that those were additions that, that were made to the text based upon other passages in the gospel accounts, using those and plugging them in, into here. It's important to keep in mind in talking about that as well. And remember that John goes out of his way to make the point that when Jesus was crucified, none of his bones were broken. And the reason why that's so important is because he is presented as the Passover lamb, the lamb that is without blemish, without spot, that is not broken, that he can be the perfect sacrifice for sins. And so we don't want to ever indicate that, well, his body had actual broken bones, thus losing the meaning of what it meant for him to be the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But I think it's important to also state, we use that word in an idiomatic expression as well. 
you've ever come home and you've said after a long day, especially with this really unusual heat that we're having right now, it's unbelievable. I was like, has it ever been this hot in West Palm? 96. You gotta be kidding me. Uh, and you come in from the door and you go, oh man, I'm whipped. Oh, somebody just whip you? No, no. It's an, it's an expression. And I think we can understand if we talk about the Lord's body being broken, there's a way to speak of it in that sense. So we're not saying, well, the bones were physically broken, but that he was scourged. He was whipped and his body was crucified. And in that sense, his body was given over to enormous, horrible, awful treatment. And I think it's fair to be able to say it in that way, as long as we understand it in that way, that that's the idea that we usually mean when we say it in, in, in that way. And so just to have to talk about that for a minute, because sometimes we'll read that and go, well, why is that different? And it's, it, it's important to see the idea. And, and not only that, you'll notice the beginning when it says there in verse 24, when he had given thanks. If you've ever wondered, why do we always have a prayer before we do the Lord's Supper? That's why. Right there. When he had given thanks, then he broke, broke, broke the bread. Uh, Matthew and Mark's Gospels will read that he blessed and broke the bread. And I want us to recognize that blessing the bread is the same thing as giving thanks. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll say, we'll pray to God to bless the bread. That's not what that means when Jesus did that. Blessing means prayer. He prayed. And that's why you'll see either says he blessed the bread. What was he doing? He gave thanks. That's what's happening right here as, as Paul records it. He gave thanks for this bread. And that's what we're doing. And in, 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 as we pray before God, is it is a prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, I, I always I grew up with that back home and say, now, now, Lord, bless this bread. And we even still have that language somewhat in our vernacular, though it's almost gone. But maybe you've heard of like when you would sit down to dinner and before you would eat, you were going to have a prayer and you'd call it the blessing. That It's the prayer. That, that's what it is. You are praying before God. And so what Jesus is doing is modeling for us as we're about to prepare and take the Lord's Supper, there is a prayer of thanksgiving that is being given. It's not a time to pray for everything else. So we, we, have, so we have our other prayer times for and our worship for. This is a moment where we are giving thanks. And notice what Jesus zeroes in on there in particular when, when, he, when he speaks of this. And he says in verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What does he tell us that we're supposed to remember? Here we are coming to the table and it is a time where the Apostle Paul says, you've taken all the meaning out of the Lord's Supper. And he's redirecting them to the significance of this memorial and what you are supposed to remember when you partake. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Well, what exactly are we supposed to remember when we are taking the bread? And he says, this is my body, which is for you. This is my body that, that's given for you. And so that is what we are recalling as we are in this moment and we are partaking of the bread is we are remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made the offering of his life for us that he gave himself for us an appropriate text that I'll read for you this morning that would tie in very well with the idea of Jesus and remembering his body that was given for us is Isaiah 53 and verse 3 where Isaiah prophesied 700 years in advance about this very event He was despised 
and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom mid hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, st- our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Isaiah just speaks well to the whole idea of what we're remembering in the sacrifice of Christ. Now in taking the bread, remembering the body, there is a focus that is centered on the offering of Jesus who gives himself up as a sacrifice for us all. Who willingly goes to the cross, who willingly allows his body to be beaten, who willingly allows himself to be mocked, who willingly allows himself to be spit upon. He volunteers for all of this. None of this happening outside of his power or outside of his control. How often Jesus would say in the Gospel of John that no one takes his life from him, that he lays it down for the sheep. All of this was within the very mind of God that this was allowed by Him. And so this is not an accident or the power of these rulers becoming too great over Jesus. Jesus lays down His life. He gives His body over as a sacrifice for us. In our recent study of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you have in verse 21 just an encapsulation, a summary statement. That He became sin who knew no sin. That we might become the righteousness of God. These are the things that we are remembering when we take of the bread. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22 offers another great summary of what we remember in regards to the bread, the body that was given for our sake. 1 Peter 2.22, in speaking of Jesus it reads, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so I hope in in taking the bread you have an awareness then of this is what we are looking at. It is a focus on sacrifice. It is a focus on His body. It's a focus on what He suffered. It's a focus on what He gave up. 
We could go to Philippians 2 and talk about leaving the throne room of God and leaving the glories of heaven to take on the form of a man and be a servant among us and submitting to the point of death, even death on the cross. These are all the concepts that are bound up when we talk about the bread and what we're remembering of that. In verse 25, it says, In the same way, He took the cup after supper, saying, I think when it speaks of the same way, since the other gospel accounts record that he gave thanks again and then gave out the cup, that in the same way would be in reference then yet again another giving of thanks. And that's why there is a prayer before we partake of the bread and there is a prayer before we partake of the cup. As here again is a prayer of thanksgiving to God. But an important question has to be asked again. What exactly are we supposed to remember? For me and what I've seen when I grew up, what I typically have seen is that we come to the cup and we remember all the same things all over again. And the big question is, is that the intention? Is that what we're supposed to be doing? Do we just simply recall and go through everything that we just thought about in regards to the bread? Is that the same thing that's supposed to happen here? I want you to notice that when Jesus says here, what he wants you to remember, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood in verse 25. And so he speaks of the cup and there's a reference to blood. But it's important that we don't shorthand that or truncate that. Is the tendency sometimes to talk about the blood and so then we'll go and say, well, there was the blood that was flowing from his side or the blood that came from the, the crown of thorns that were on his head. But notice that's not where Paul says your focus is exactly supposed to be. He says here, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In fact, all of the gospel accounts, when they speak of the cup, they speak of it as the blood of the covenant or the new covenant in my blood. Those two things are tied together in the four places where the Lord's Supper is commanded. It is never just said, this is my blood. It is the blood of the covenant. It is always tied to the concept of new covenant. Well, what does that mean? What exactly is that getting at to say this is the blood of the covenant when we partake of the cup that I want you to remember? Hebrews chapter 9 is perhaps one of the most useful places for us to consider the connection of that. Hebrews 9 and verse 15, he says there, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Here's the point that's being made here by the writer of Hebrews. The point is that a covenant cannot be ratified without blood. That a death must occur for a covenant then to be enacted. And and a great way to keep that idea in your mind is when does your last will and testament take effect? Not till you die. That's when that testament, that covenant, that will comes into effect. 
And that's the point the writer of Hebrews is making as he speaks of this. He says, there was even blood under the first covenant. There had to be death to inaugurate the first covenant that was made under Moses. And so he says, there was that first covenant that was given. But now he says, there is this new covenant, this new will that comes in. And that comes in only because of death. And so what we are giving thanks for and what we are remembering when we come to the blood of the covenant is that we are remembering that that's how this covenant that we live under was enacted. The only way that we can stand before God and the only way that we can enjoy any relationship with God and belong to this covenant is that Christ died. That's the concept of blood of the covenant. In fact, it's highlighted even more if you notice verse 19 now of Hebrews 9. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. And now notice, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Notice that connection. What's the blood of the covenant mean? Is that the only way to be purified? And the only way for there to be forgiveness is that there be the shedding of blood. And so when we come then to the Lord's Supper and we come to the cup, we are shifting away from just simply thinking about the body of Jesus. That's what the bread is there for. We remember sacrifice. We remember all that He gave up. We remember the suffering. But when we come then to the cup, we're shifting. And we're remembering that it is through that death we have forgiveness of sins. It's through that death a new covenant was enacted. It is through that death that now we can be purified. And and I've described it to you before in this way, and I'll describe it to you again as you think about these two elements, is that I believe when we come to the bread, there's a significant amount of sadness that's intended. As we come to memorial and we think about the death of Christ, that's moving. He died for us. We didn't deserve that. We were like sheep going astray. Why God would look upon us and care about us in the slightest. A bunch of sinful enemies, violators of His law. And yet He loves us so much. And He says, I'll come down to earth, take on the form of a man and allow my creation to scourge me and beat me and spit upon me, reject me and crucify me. It's stunning. And then as you move to the cup, it becomes more positive. Because you think it's a good thing that He did come do that. Because I need forgiveness of sins. And I can't have forgiveness of sins unless He dies. And I can't be under this new covenant that puts me in relationship with my God unless there's a shedding of blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. All of the Old Testament was picturing that through that sacrificial system. People sinned. A death of an animal occurred. Blood was needed. 
for God to forgive. And all of that was intended to be a picture book for us to show us that animals are insufficient. The gravity and the weight of our sin is so great that it would require the death of God himself to be able to deal with our sins, to be able to purify us, to be able to remove those. That's what Christ came to do. And that's what we're going to remember now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Well, what we have done according to verse 26 then is we have just proclaimed the Lord's death. As we eat and drink, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And what a no better way to say that to each other on a weekly basis but to partake of these elements and to say to one another, He died for us and we long for the time when He will return. And we thus we do that on the first day of every week as you see like in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 as we proclaim Jesus and remind ourselves as we come to this memorial and think about how important Jesus is, how important His death is, and how Jesus should be the center of everything for our lives. In then looking at verses 27 to the end of the chapter, there's also some warnings that were given to, to these Corinthians. One of the things that he warns there is in verse 27, whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. It's important to keep this in context, and that's why context is very important, because sometimes we can come to that and think, well, maybe if I don't say something quite right, or if uh, my kids start acting up and I take of the bread, am I doing something in an unworthy manner? But what is the unworthy manner that was going on here in the Corinthian church? Uh, Turn it into a common meal, removing all of the value and all of the meaning and all the significance out of the Lord's Supper and just kind of rushing through and we're here to eat and we're not going to do this together. And he's warning them of that and saying, that's an unworthy manner. You need to come together and not have a selfish purpose when you take of the Lord's Supper. But you need to come together and treat this as what it is, but a memorial of Jesus. And and that's why we spend time doing that. That's why I've always been, let's not not hurry that. There's no reason to hurry through the Lord's Supper. In fact, the elders have said that those who lead our minds before we partake of the Lord's Supper to go ahead and take a few minutes. And let's make sure that we get our hearts and our minds centered on what we're about to do. So that we don't lose its significance, that we don't detract from it, and may we never consider that this is something that is just a habit or something mindless, or let's just get through it and move on to the next act of worship and move it right along. That would be a disaster. Don't do that. And so that is the warning that's given to us about the unworthy manner is that we would not detract from its significance that we would not turn it into something where it's no longer memorial, where we no longer center our minds and our hearts upon our Lord. And verse 28 is also sometimes misunderstood. Uh, Let a person then examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and and drink of the cup. Uh, Sometimes people will put 27 and 28 there, those two verses together and say, well, I can't ever be worthy of the sacrifice. And so I'm, I'm trying to examine myself and I know I'm not worthy. And that's not what this is talking about. Uh, We'll never be worthy of the sacrifice of Christ. You can try that all you want. We're never going to get there. 
That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. Is Examine your life and if you have any shortcomings, you better not partake of the Lord's Supper because then the memorial would never happen. I'm full of shortcomings. Things I could have done much better last week that I didn't do. Full of sin. That, that's not the idea here at all. The idea of examining ourselves again goes back to our context of please be thoughtful in what you do. Please be aware of what that moment was. And be aware of, of what we are focusing on. That we would just do this in a way so that God is glorified as we partake. And I think it's so interesting what he says there. And he warns them and says, you bring judgment on yourself when you're, when you're abusing the Lord's Supper. It shows that this is not just some insignificant thing to God. As he warns them and says, what you've done with the Lord's Supper by taking of it selfishly, by turning it into a meal, by subtracting the meaning and taking away from the glory that belongs to it in remembering Jesus' sacrifice and remembering the forgiveness of sins and the new covenant that came to us. He says, you're you're bringing judgment on yourself and that should be a, a, a vivid warning to us in what we are doing when we partake of it is that we would never do so in such a way where we look at it and see this as something that just has to be done. That we would look at it and just go, well, you know, there's these things that we have to do. We have to sing, we have to pray, uh, we have to have the Lord's Supper, and we have to have a sermon. So let's just kind of get all these things that we have to out of the way. We need a memorial. For something as significant as this, that Jesus died, we need a memorial to bring ourselves back to what we are here for. And I don't mean just here in terms of our assembly, but what we are here for in life. The death of Jesus is supposed to be the hub of our existence. That's supposed to be everything to us. The whole reason we live and the whole reason that we can have eternal life, the whole reason that we have any hope whatsoever, and the whole of our existence and what we long for and cling for is because Christ died. If that doesn't happen, we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. And how wise of God to recognize that we are terribly forgetful people who often forget the most important things in life. Some of the greatest things that may have happened in life, we have the tendency to forget. And sometimes the things that we even do to try to remember those things, we can take for granted and it becomes nothing to us. I want us to to consider for a minute the whole intention of memorials. A few years ago, uh, had the opportunity with our families. We were doing a family trip. We, we went to New York City. We were able to go to the 9-11 memorial there in lower Manhattan. And going into that place where the two towers fell is a, a staggering memorial. They have two infinity pools there on the places where the building stood And it's a fountain that you can't see the bottom, and it just pours into it. And there are signs that tell you this is a place where over 3,000 people died. 
And you are to be quiet. You are to be calm. And be reverent on these grounds. As you look and walk about that place. This is not a place for kids to be, you know, it's a pretty big area. It's not a place for kids to be playing frisbee. It's not a place for running around. It's not a place for yelling. It was a place where they're intending you to have sobriety, reflection, examination. When we were in Washington, D.C., there's all kinds of memorials there. You have to look at the Vietnam Memorial. It's the same thing. As you stand before that cold black block and look at all the names of all the people who died, it's intended to hit you so that you stop, you reflect, it sobers you up, and you remember That's what the Lord's Supper is supposed to do. It's supposed to be the time to realign our lives. To cause us to reflect. To cause us to examine. And to think about what happened for us. That the greatest death of all of human history occurred. So that we could be forgiven of sins. So that we could have the hope of eternal life. So that we'd be able to have a relationship with God. Every Lord's Day, that was God's intention. That we would go through the week and we get busy and we forget. And we get caught up in the affairs of life. We just have all kinds of things that happen. But that there would be a day, every single Sunday, that God would draw His people back together again say this is everything don't forget what happened at the cross don't forget the greatest event in human history don't forget the greatest sacrifice ever made don't forget what your God has done for you that's what the Lord's Supper is all about and we proclaim that every week as we conclude then the Lord's Supper also as a declaration that says, will you come to the Lord because He died for you? As part of that proclamation, we are saying we have experienced the great grace of God. We are enjoying something so special to have a relationship with Him because He came and He died. And I hope that you will consider where you are in your relationship with God. And I hope the Lord's Supper today was able to reorient your thinking back to the cross and to put your mind back on the sacrifice And allow that to be the hub for your life as you go now through the rest of your day today and the rest of your week this week. That that will stay in the center. That the sacrifice of Jesus will be everything. And that you will let the words of what the Apostle Paul recorded for us about His body and His blood of the covenant to be the impact that you need so that you will have a heart to serve Him. As you go through the craziness of the week and the work and all the family and all that goes on, keep Jesus as the hub. If you need to get Jesus as your hub, to get Him centered in your life, to make Him your all, and you haven't become a Christian, you haven't been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, you are not following Him as God called you to, today is the opportunity to do that. Will you turn away from your life of sin to follow Jesus, your Savior, with all of your heart? 
to confess Him as the Son of God who came to this world and died for your sins. If you're ready to do that, there's water behind the curtains, and we call for you to do that now, that you would come and do that while we stand and while we